I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson, and in a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Tilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, B. Lund, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, the Quincy Institute's Ben Freeman returns to discuss his latest report on issues related to foreign lobbying and foreign influence operations in the United States, this time with a focus on the UAE. His latest report is entitled The Emirati Lobby in America and deals with the 25 different firms working on behalf of the UAE to influence American foreign policy. It'll lead us to discussions of the Abraham Accords, the war in Yemen, and the Expo 2020 Dubai. Additionally, the figure of Kristen Cinema comes up, and we'll discuss how this kind of foreign lobbying affects not only U.S. foreign policy, but other nations around the world. All that and more on this edition of Parallax Views. Welcome back to Parallax Views, one of my favorite guests. He's a font of knowledge on the issue of foreign influence in American politics. Ben Freeman of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me again, JG. So, uh, Ben, you ended the... 2022 year uh, with a rather fascinating report for Quincy on the Emirati lobby in the United States. Uh, Maybe before we get into uh, the lobbying efforts of the UAE, we should talk about the relationship uh, between uh, the U.S. and the UAE uh, and maybe how that relationship uh, plays into uh, why the UAE uh, seeks to influence us on a lot of uh, foreign policy issues. Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Um, the the relationship between the U.S. and the UAE, uh, particularly in recent years, 
uh, has really come together and, and, and solidified on a number of issues. We, for years now, we've had a, a long-standing uh, military ties with the UAE, uh, and it includes really all facets of a military engagement with them. Everything from billions of dollars in arms sales to military training and, and cooperation, uh, and, and in some cases, working together on counterterrorism counter efforts as well. Um, so uh, really across the board with military issues, we've seen this really, really strengthening U.S.-U.A.U. ties. On other Real issues quick in that regard, I was going to just mention uh, for my listeners' sake, uh, I believe there was a Quincy Institute report by William Hartung recently uh, that showed that the U.A.U. is the third largest recipient of U.S. weapons in the last five years behind only Afghanistan and Saudi Arabia. So that ties into the point you made about the U.S. Uh, relationship to the U.A.U. with regards to the military. Right. That, that, that's exactly right. And I'm, I'm so glad you brought up Bill's work. Um, uh, Hard Time's always doing great stuff. And then and that finding actually was shocking to me, too, because I think when when people think about U.S. arms sales, you know, they think about the, the our, our, our big buyers, you know, like you mentioned, uh, Afghanistan and others. Uh, but but little Sparta, as the UAE is known in military circles, um, they're buying up almost as much as as the top recipients of U.S. arms sales. And another thing they're buying up a lot of, too, on the military side is uh, former military ex expertise. The Project on Government Oversight in the Washington Post had, uh, had exposés last fall where they documented literally hundreds of former high-ranking DOD um, active duty military and DOD civilians who had gone on to work for the UAE and advise them on military matters and, and other issues as well. Um, and when when they do these sorts of things, they're paid extremely lucrative salaries. Uh, you, you know, a military officer who who leaves the military making around a uh, hundred thousand dollars might sign a contract for three hundred or four hundred, or in some cases half a million dollars to go and work for the UAE. Now, obviously, there are some serious security concerns w w with these types of contracts. You know, these are folks that are just coming uh, from having classified information about the U.S. military, then going to work for a foreign power. And regardless of what folks think, if is the UAE an ally or are they a friend or are they a friend of me, uh, I don't know. Uh, at the end of the day, the UAE is an autocratic government in a, uh, a really uh, chaotic region in the Middle East there. So I think there's always a risk about national security secrets getting out there when they're hiring our former high-ranking national security personnel. I was going to say real quick in that regard, there was a, um, wasn't there a report compiled by the National Intelligence Council that got shared with policymakers that dealt with all of this, the UAE meddling in American politics, and basically saying that this is uh, a national security concern in the intelligence community. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's exactly right. We were we 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 had heard rumblings about that report kind of making its way around for uh, a while since last summer, um, but it was publicly announced, um, I believe, in uh, late November. That that in fact we were then there was this national security assessment of UAE meddling uh, in, in in U.S. politics and elections, both through their legal and illegal means. And the the the, the report, which we'll get to in a minute, uh, you know, we cover in that report we cover all the legal influence operations of the UAE, uh, but that leaves out a really huge and significant illegal UAE meddling operation that we know is happening here. In the U.S. and it has been for years. 
this was highlighted really heavily in a in a court trial this fall with uh, former Trump uh, friend, uh, business associate Tom Barrett. He was accused of doing some of this illegal meddling work for the UAE. But he was far from the last one, uh, or he certainly won't be the last one. He wasn't the first one. Before him, other folks pled guilty uh, to, to doing illegal lobbying and meddling campaigns for the UAE. And they're not just working with one side. You know, Tom Barrick was a Trump associate, but in a previous campaign, they had launched this illegal campaign, uh, uh, illegal election interference campaign to funnel money into the presidential campaign of then presidential candidate Hillary Clinton. Uh, they funneled uh, upwards of a million dollars, according to the DOJ, any legal contributions to Clinton. So whether you're a Republican or, or a Democrat, chances are the UAE is trying to to tip the scales of these elected officials in their favor. Real quick, since you mentioned Tom Barrick, uh, for people that don't know, um, could you just briefly summarize uh, that case? Because I think it actually got people to pay more attention uh, to the UAE and its attempts to influence um, U.S. foreign policy. Of course, he was the former uh, advisor for Trump, so that really got the attention of a lot of people in the media. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. A former advisor to Trump, um, somebody who actually spoke uh, on the stage of the Republican National Convention back in 2016, uh, spoke in favor of Trump, of course, and, uh, you know, longtime friend, business associate, all that. Um, Tom Barrick is an international uh, businessman. He has business interests uh, all over the Middle East and, as I understand it, uh, all over the world, really. And one of the places where he has significant business interests is uh, in the UAE. And uh, due at least in part to those business interests, he had uh, outstanding relationships with a number of folks in the UAE government. And if the, the uh, as far as the DOJ accusations go, at least, um, he was allegedly working with some folks in the UAE government in an attempt to influence the Trump administration and influence uh, Trump's foreign policy in the UAE government's favor. Uh, the DOJ got wind of this, and the DOJ felt that they had a pretty clear-cut case that the, the, the work he was doing uh, would have required registration under the Foreign Agents Registration Act. And he, because he didn't do that, he was effectively serving as, a, 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 as something of an illegal conduit between the UAE government and the Trump administration. Uh, his camp fought back, uh, uh, of course, and they said, no, 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 this is just a businessman doing international business dealings, and he's just uh, he's just trying to make more and more money for himself. And he kind of disparaged Trump along the way in the trial. Uh, the jury ultimately acquitted him. He was found not guilty of the charges, um, and, and, and so the case was uh, kind of thrown out. Uh, later, <laughs> the DOJ uh, said after the fact that they did not, despite the outcome, they did not regret the prosecution, and they still thought they had a very strong case against them. So, uh, you know, you take that for what you will. Real quick, too, uh, because you mentioned it. Uh, so the, the UAE, they're not just tied to uh, maybe Republican politicians and trying to influence Republicans. Uh, you also mentioned Democrats. I, I think there's some misconceptions that people have when it comes to um, foreign lobbying and uh, U.S. foreign policy in, in uh, the two political parties, because one of the things I will often hear is, oh, you know, the, the Saudis try to influence uh, the Republicans more, and it's the sort of Qataris that try to influence Democrats. But it seems like now um, pretty much all these Gulf countries are trying to influence both parties. Yeah, JG, that's exactly right. I couldn't have said it better. 
when when it comes to foreign influence and particularly in the countries you mentioned these the, these middle east uh, authoritarian regimes they at the end of the day they don't care if a person has a d or an r after their name that doesn't matter matter to them what matters to them is if you can get done what they need to get done and in some cases that's the democrats uh in some cases that's the republicans and in some cases, it might be a specific Democrat or a Republican and that can get things done. They need to get done. So what we really see, rather than these sort of like partisan leanings that can come and go, depending on what the situation is and what the what the political environment is at that time. What we see through and through in foreign lobbying campaigns is a focus on the most influential members of both parties. And that could be people like the the Speaker of the House, uh, former Speaker of the House, I should say, Nancy Pelosi. Uh, Her former chief of staff is now a a, a lobbyist for a number of Middle Eastern autocracies, too. Uh, So they'll try to influence folks like Nancy Pelosi. But it's also high ranking members on key committees like uh, the the National, uh, uh, for example, the House Armed Services Committee, which uh, develops the National Defense Authorization Act every year. Folks like Adam Smith on that committee uh, are, are folks they're going to target. Uh, on the Republican side, they would go after the Senate Armed Services Committee. Previously, John McCain uh, was one of the top targets uh, on the Republican side. Because again, these are folks that can get things done that these foreign powers need to get done. And it's not about their partisanship. At the end of the day, they don't care about that. These foreign governments are worried about getting done what they need need to get done. So I, I want to get more into maybe the illegal attempts to steer U.S. foreign policy uh, by the Emirati lobby. But when we talk about the legal attempts to steer U.S. foreign policy, what do we mean by, by sort of the legal ways in which um, there can be UAE lobbying efforts? And uh, for, for people that will say, oh, well, if it's legal, then why should we be concerned? Like, it's it's their right to do that. I mean, this is just how uh, U.S. politics works. What, what would you say to those people? And also maybe detail some of those legal attempts to steer U.S. foreign policy. Sure. It's a, it's a good question. And a, it's a fair question. It's a question I get a good bit. Um, because this is legal, uh, why why should we be worried about it? And if they're transparent about it, then then so what? Uh, the fact of the matter is that even if it is legal, uh, it's not all equal. And what, what I mean by that is uh, regimes like the UAE, they spend far, far, far more than most other countries do on lobbying and influence operations. So even if it is perfectly legal, uh, countries, small countries at the end of the day, like the UAE, get a real outsized influence on foreign policy outcomes in D.C. because of the amount of spending they're putting into these legal influence operations. So that's why I think it's important to keep an eye on. Thing two is that even though this is, it is transparent, technically, everything, uh, all the information that I work with is available uh, from the Department of Justice at uh, FARA.gov. Uh, it's what I like to call hiding in plain sight. <laughs> yes, it's all there, but for the average member of the public um, who, who hasn't been doing this for 15 years like I have, you, you go to that site and your your head starts spinning because it's hard to track anything down. It's a government site that's very cumbersome. You get into these pot filings that they're making. It's a lot of legal jargon, a lot of stuff that doesn't make sense. And a lot of the firms aren't actually transparent. So as I talked about in the report, some are wonderful. Um, some of the top lobbying firms, a firm called Eakin Gump, which I mentioned a lot in the report, they're, they're fantastic. 
fantastically transparent, but other firms are not. They uh, they hide some of the information that they're doing. They hide the work that they're doing. And I think because of all those things, uh, it, it can be somewhat of a false dichotomy to say, well, like this part is legal and that part's illegal. There's a big gray area here in the middle where you know it's not exactly clear, uh, even though it is legal, what they're doing. They're not being fully transparent about it. And so that sort of toes the line but well, with the legality. There's also another dimension to the UAE that's very much worth mentioning, too, is that uh, in, in addition to the lobbying of the PR firms that, that I chronicle on the report, the UAE spends the third most on uh, contributions to D.C. think tanks. And in fact, they are the highest spender on D.C. think tanks of any country in the Middle East, including heavyweights like Qatar, uh, Israel, you name it, the UAE spends more than them. They spend more on, on think tanks than any country except uh, for, for England and Norway, for example. So uh, <laughs> you know, I don't think too many people are worried about you know, the UK's influence on, on U.S. politics. But I think a lot of folks would be interested to know that many, uh, if not most, of the major foreign policy think tanks in D.C., are funded by the UAE. And the, the work that I've done and the work that other uh, folks like Eli Clifton has done some great work on UAE influence too. Uh, Eli's my colleague at the Quincy Institute. Uh, what Eli and I have found uh, over and over is that, that that money, that UAE funding that think tanks get, uh, there's no such thing as a free lunch. Uh, when think tanks get that money, there's an expectation of what those think tanks uh, can and will do for the UAE, or at the very least, there's an expectation of what those think tanks won't do. And that, uh, most notably, is criticize the UAE. It's yeah, very- I was going to say real quickly, I mean, th- this sort of came up during uh, the whole uh, World Cup fiasco uh, it, w- with Qatar. And, I, you know, I'm not defending uh, Qatar with, with their human rights abuses, but I, I don't think they're entirely wrong to say, well, you know, the UAE does a lot of PR against us and they pay for PR against our country because they don't want you focusing on uh, their rights abuses. Um, and it is it is kind of true that, uh, hey, maybe you're allowed in this think tank to criticize Qatar or some other countries, but don't criticize the UAE. They're giving us funding, you know? Right, right. That's exactly right. And I, I sometimes, when I, I write things or Eli writes things, critiquing these think tanks for their funding and, and what they're doing, and you know they come back to us uh, very, very often. They say, "No, no, you know we would never. You know how dare you? You, you know besmirch our reputation." And what, what we always come back to then is like, "Oh, okay. You, you know, if you don't think it affects uh, the, the work you're doing, then be critical. <laughs> be critical of the UAE when they make a mistake. When another one of these court cases comes forward about illegal UAE meddling." Say something about it. Say something that you, you know that says the UAE shouldn't be doing this. Um, and whenever we ask them to do that, or we look to see if they've done that, it's crickets. The, the think tanks that receive that UAE money, they stay silent about the UAE's misdeeds. And in that way, the funding helps to change and shape the U.S. foreign policy conversation in favor uh, of these regimes that are funding it. And, and it's almost way, like it's a form of uh, it becomes a form of perception management in some ways. It, it's it's one hundred percent perception management, and there's uh, PR folks refer to it as positive perception management and uh, the, the 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 negative perception management too. If you can stymie the number of voices out there that are being critical uh, of your regime, 
you're, you're helping your image a lot. And if you're the UAE, you brought up Qatar, if you can you know, sort of play a little jujitsu and take people's inner negative energy about you and spin it onto your rival, well, that's even better then. And, and we see a lot of that with the UAE, uh, Saudi Arabia and Qatar kind of spinning the ball and trying to get us to focus on the misdeeds uh, of other people, but certainly not them. So then with regards to um, uh, the the illegal means in which um, UAE lobbying happens, uh, what, what are some prescient examples? I know one that you bring up in the uh, report that people may or may not know about is the Lebanese-American businessman George Nader. Yeah, yeah. Broidy and Nader, I'm, I'm glad you brought up. Um, uh, George Nader and Elliot Broidy um, were part of actually a variety of schemes and uh, working with the UAE. And uh, one of them, and this takes us back to um, uh, Qatari influence, was a, a few years ago, there was a, 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 for lack of a better word, a spat uh, between the UAE, Saudi Arabia, and a handful of other countries in the Middle East. Uh, issued a, a blockade of Qatar. And uh, it was, uh, according to some accounts, they were even threatening uh, military action uh, against Qatar. And then they had sort of longstanding uh, rivalry, uh, Sunni and Shia issues and, and, and other things feeding into it. But th there was a blockade issued um, against Qatar. What we we learned after the fact, there was a lobbying fight that started kind of right away. You know, we could see that. I've, I've documented it um, for, for Quincy and for uh, the Center for International Policy previously. We, we had good information about that fight. What we didn't learn until um, a couple of years ago was that behind the scenes, uh, the UAE was funneling this sort of shadow campaign to, to try and get think tanks to uh, to do and say bad things about uh, Qatar as well. This included helping to fund some anti-Qatar conferences. And allegedly, the think tanks involved, uh, they did not know uh, that the funding was ultimately uh, coming from the UAE. Uh, one of those, the Foundation for Defense of Democracy, said that, you know, they had no idea that it was actually UAE money that they were taking and said, you know, pledge to give the money back and all that stuff. Uh, but but that one uh, situation is another example of how that the foreign money can seep in and illegally uh, try try to change the foreign policy debate. Another one, which which I hinted at previously, was the uh, the campaign they were orchestrating to illegally get money into the 2016 U.S. election. This was one of their more brazen attempts. This was a, a conduit campaign where the UAE funneled money to some folks. And then those folks funnel money into this specific campaign contributions of key individuals, including Hillary Clinton. Um, and there was a large donation made to after Donald Trump won the uh, presidential election to his inaugural committee. Part of that money went to the inaugural committee, too. So, again, it was uh, Republicans, Democrats. It didn't matter to them. The UAE was using its vast resources and oil wealth to illegally influence the U.S. political process. So let's talk about uh, for for just the lay listener that that's hearing this. Um, how does this affect U.S. foreign policy? And also, even I mean, how does this affect you know non-U.S. countries? I mean, uh, you know, with, with with regards to things like Saudi lobbying, I mean, we we see what has happened with uh, the war in Yemen. Uh, so this affects not just the U.S. but uh, tons of other countries as well, especially smaller countries that don't have. 
the level of influence as a UAE lobbying effort or a Saudi lobbying effort? Yeah, yeah, that's it's a great question, JG. And the you, you're exactly right that the the UAE lobbying effort it it has impacts well beyond the UAE. And I think one of the best example of uh, of this is is the Arab Spring. Right. Um, about a decade ago now, we have the Arab Spring. We see, you know, these these democratic uh, movements throughout the Middle East. And, you know, we think we're going to get the significant shift in countries, you know, moving to democratic systems of governance. This scared the heck out of the UAE and Saudi Arabia and some of the established authoritarian regimes there. And so they went above and beyond the call to try and make sure that those democratic uprisings didn't happen. Uh, they tried to influence U.S. foreign policy to that effect. Uh, they tried to prop up strongmen in those country, countries to crush those democratic uprisings. And in many ways, they were using their lobbying and, and PR machines here in the U.S. to help them in, in those efforts. And these countries, on the other hand, you know, many of these countries like uh, Tunisia, for example, uh, there really is no Tunisia lobby here in the U.S. to 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 to, to respond or to or to say no 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 that's not actually what's going on in Tunisia. Um, it, it's virtually non-existent. Whereas you look at the Ukraine or the UAE lobby, uh, they have more than two dozen lobbying and PR firms working for them uh, at, at any given time. So it's just a, this incredible imbalance can really affect the U.S. foreign policy decisions in, in countries throughout the Middle East. Another one you brought up was uh, was in Yemen. When we think about Yemen, I think a lot of folks think about Saudi Arabia's influence in Yemen, uh, but I think a lot of folks overlook the UAE's role in Yemen. Uh, UAE had sent forces on the ground in Yemen. Uh, they had, but by some accounts, they were they were running an extra judicial extra judicial um, uh, kill squad there. That was former military U.S. military soldiers, by the way. The UAE had hired to go in there and commit targeted assassinations in Yemen. Um, they, they were been accused of being guilty of torture, myriad human rights violations there. And even when they, uh, a couple of years ago, they allegedly pulled out their forces uh, from Yemen, uh, by some accounts, plenty of UAE-backed forces are still operating in the Yemen war to this day. Uh, so I think for... For, for for that case alone, it, it's really, really important to keep an eye on what the UAE lobbyists are doing because they, the lobbyists themselves, they continue to lobby related to the Yemen war and the UAE and the U.S.'s role in the Yemen war. So because of if the lobbyists are still talking about it, I think the, the American public should still be concerned about what the UAE is doing in Yemen. And, and to your bigger question, JG, I, I should have answered this first. You know, what, why does all this matter for the for the your average listener? Why does this matter for the average uh, U.S. citizen? Because it brings the U.S. closer to military engagement in the Middle East, and it creates a more militarized U.S. foreign policy that increases the risk that the U.S. could, whether intentionally or accidentally, find itself in in, in the heart of another conflict in the Middle East where America's sons and daughters are asked to go and fight once again. And, you, you know, we've seen U.S. soldiers die in Yemen. Uh, Navy SEALs have been killed in an incursion in Yemen uh, a, a few years ago. We don't know exactly where the next tripwire could be, but we see both Saudi Arabia and the UAE, their lobbyists, 
uh, in their countries. They're pushing for greater U.S. military alliances. They're pushing for the, the to have a sort of um, you know Middle East kind of version of NATO or maybe a NATO light. To where if one of these countries got involved in a in military engagement, the U.S. would be asked to come to their support. I think that's something that very few Americans would like or support. So again, because of that, the the, the lobby is working to set up uh, that potential, that danger for U.S. foreign policy. I think that's why we really need to keep an eye on the UAE lobby. If it's okay, I want to get into the sort of nitty gritty elements of uh, the report. But before we do that, um, you know, I've had listeners say to me, well, why do we even have these um foreign lobbyists at all like well why is there like legal foreign lobbying and i do think there are actual reasons for that i mean the u.s has an out, outsized influence in the world uh, so of course there's going to be countries that that say hey well we want to have our voice heard uh by the the u.s politicians and whatnot and that's understandable given the outsized u.s role in the world but uh how do you respond to people that say or or are curious as to why um, foreign lobbying is allowed uh, because I, I think some people, I've had some people that listen to our shows that we've done together say, "Well, why does this exist in the first place? Well, why is there foreign lobbying?" Yeah, it's a, it's definitely a fair question. Um, and, and, and there's a couple ways I, I think that are useful to think about it. the The first is that, believe it or not, uh, the U.S. has the best system in the world for regulating foreign lobbying. Most countries um, have absolutely nothing. And we, we, we've learned about this recently um, dur during the uh, World Cup in Qatar. We learned that uh, the Qatari government was actually bribing, uh, or I should say allegedly bribing, uh, European parliament figures and uh, have been lobbying them extensively. And then, you know, this was illegal. But the European parliament has no system to, to track lobbying or, or influence campaigns like this. So as you know, as broken or as bad as the U.S. system might be, uh, it, it's still uh, it's still better than anything else we see in in the world. Um, there have been proposals to ban uh, foreign lobbying outright. My concern with those is if you say, well, you can do none of this, and then we we get rid of FARA, then all of this kind of goes dark. And all of these, you know, lobbying campaigns that, you know, I can know a little bit about and I can talk with you about and tell tell folks about in my writings, all of that kind of goes dark. And all of these kind of become covert influence operations. Like where dark money operations, basically. Dark money. Everything becomes dark money then. If you make if you make legal lobbying uh illegal, then everything becomes dark money. And we don't find the problem with dark money, many problems with dark money, we don't find about out about the influence until well after the fact. It's when we DOJ or somebody with investigative authority can can investigate it and dig up the dirt. But they do that long after whatever the policy ramifications have, uh, the dust has already settled on them. So the damage has been done. The, the advantage of having a system like FARA, even as much as you know, we might didn't detest what's going on here, is that we can keep an eye on, on some of this stuff. We can say at least who the lobbying firms are, who the players are, and have a general sense of what they're up to. And I, I really do think it helps to to separate, you know, the people we may not like, you know, we may not like a lobbyist who's, who's working on behalf of a foreign dictator. Uh, you, you know, you know, we may think that, you know, shame on you. But I, I think there's a big difference between that person and somebody who was an outright spy, you, you know, thinking back to the Cold War, you know, you know, that Russian spy who's, you know, getting those suitcases full of money at a dead drop. 
you know, that person to me is, is much more of a villain than, uh, than than a foreign lobbyist. And so, you, you know, if we can separate those two out, you know, I can keep an eye at least on, on, on part of that equation. I'll take it as imperfect as that may be. So in regards to the nitty gritty, uh, when it comes to uh, the Quincy report uh, that you did, um, how did you go about doing this analysis? Um, you, you know, what went into deciding, hey, how are we going to report on the political activities? I think you found over, what, um, 10,000 uh, yeah. political activities by the Emirati lobby. Uh, maybe you could just talk about the process of doing the research for this report. Um, painful. Uh <laughs> <laughs> in a word. So this is a trigger. Uh, so I'm just starting this all over again uh, with, with the Saudi lobby. We have a report coming out of the Saudi lobby here in a few months. Um, so I'm starting this all over again. Um, but the, the way my process works, and I'm, I'm, I'm blessed with that, ha- having the benefit of working with some wonderful interns and, and colleagues here at the Quincy Institute, uh, uh, who, who helped me with this mammoth task. We, and what we do, we, we take a look at every single filing that these firms make with the Department of Justice under the Foreign Agents Registration Act. Uh, we go into those documents and we pull out all of this information. We pull out um, every single contract, every single dollar that they received uh, from, from these UAE clients. And we record every campaign contribution they make and their fair filings. They have to, have to report any contribution that these foreign lobbyists make. We record all of those. And so we get the exact uh, contribution date, the exact person they gave it to, who at the firm made that contribution. We record all of that in one part of our database. The big one is that we go through and we track every single political activity. We monitor every single political activity that they report. Um, and this uh, this can include a simple email that they might send out to the press, uh, you know, about a news article, something like that. Uh, could include a phone call that they have with a congressional staffer. Um, could go all the way up to meetings directly with the National Security Council or meetings with a key member of Congress or a senator uh, who, who's responsible for a key arms sales vote, let's say. We track every single one of those political activities. We put all of that into a, a, a massive database where we can then analyze all that information, put it all together, and really try to connect the dots. Our first step in that process, we try to see, oh, okay, who, who are they contacting? Who are they reaching out to? Uh, you know, it's the key members of Congress. And we say, who are the busiest firms? We can identify all that. Then the really fun I was going to say, with, with the UAE report, there's what? Um, there's 25 firms that are registered under FERA that, that basically have UAE clients, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. 25 firms, uh, over $60 million that they received and more than 10,000 political con- contacts. And then an, an, another key stat out of that report is we documented more than $1.6 million in campaign contributions and more than a half a million dollars of that we were able to trace from the these firms working for the UAE to members of Congress that they had contacted on behalf of the UAE. Which, uh, you, you know, if, you're, if your listeners are upset about lobbying happening at all, they're probably going to be really upset to hear that in addition to lobbying on behalf of these foreign powers, these lobbyists that are working for the foreign powers are making campaign contributions to the very same members of Congress they're contacting uh, on behalf of the UAE. In some cases, they're, they're doing it the same day they're, they're meeting with them. They're not even trying to hide it. 
um, we call these same day contributions. Uh, so, uh, others happen the day before, the day after a key meeting. Um, but but at the end of the day, we tracked over a half a million dollars that, that went to these members. That's more than 100 members of Congress who received contributions from these lobbyists um, that they have uh, been contacted uh, by on behalf of the UAE. And all of which, uh, to, to be clear, all of which is perfectly legal un under our campaign finance system. There's nothing that prevents a lobbyist from making a campaign contribution to a member of Congress that they contact on behalf of a foreign client or a domestic client or, or, or anybody. Those lobbyists are free to make those contributions to whomever they choose. So uh, let's get into naming names a little bit. Uh, what, what would you say are the most important firms here? I, I guess uh, Aiken Gump, Strauss, uh, I, I I don't want to mispronounce it, but it's we'll call it Aiken Gump, right? Aiken Gump, yeah, 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 yeah. They go by Aiken Gump, but so so many of these firms, uh, JG, they have you know about a half a dozen names in there, and then at the end of the day, they they just go by Aiken or <laughs> Aiken Gump in this case by by common parlance. Aiken Gump was by far um, the the top firm uh, working on behalf of the UAE. Uh, we, we documented thousands of political activities that Aiken Gump reported. And well, 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 one thing I note in the report is that I I, I think Aiken Gump, uh, you know, as big as uh, they are, and we might disagree with what they're doing for the UAE. They are, uh, all that aside, they're fantastically transparent in, in their FARA filings. They record every single political activity, all their contributions. Uh, they file everything on time. I think everything is very above board with them. So I do give them credit for that. Uh, but, but, but they're really the, the big firm working for the UAE. Uh, aside from making Gump, you have a number of other really big firms, too. Uh, the, the Glover Park Group, for example, they do a considerable amount of work. Um, Hager Elwad and Associates, uh, Brunswick Group, um, I, I could go on and on. Uh, but but all those I just mentioned there are, are firms that have con they reported more than a thousand political activities on behalf of the UAE. In regards to uh, the Emirati lobby and uh, I, I guess the challenges maybe that it's faced uh, with the Biden administration, like what, what are the hurdles uh, it, it has had to overcome. Like, how has it tried to influence things uh, in the Biden years? Yeah, it, I think with Biden, it's been a. Uh, I think it's been a bit frustrating for, for for those of us who are Middle East watchers coming off of the Trump years when we sort of, you know, we had the Trump administration who just didn't seem to have any qualms of you know bending over backwards to do whatever the Saudis and the Emiratis wanted. Um, so I think we were we were at least hopeful when we got to the Biden administration that we would see you know a real about face. Um, in some ways we did, but in a lot of ways I, I I just really don't think that has happened. One thing the Biden administration has done that that, that I will say uh, we've been supportive of is they they effectively stalled out a major arms sale to the UAE for uh, U.S. military F thirty fives or our most advanced fighter jets. Uh, and our military drones. So th this was going to be a monster arms sale that was going to be over uh, $20 billion at the end of the day. So they effectively put the kibosh on that, despite considerable efforts of the UAE lobby. As I documented in the report, um, oh my goodness, we were we were just shocked by the number of political activities and the amount of work that UAE lobbyists putting into this deal to try and get it to the finish line. Uh, it ultimately hasn't yet. Uh, but on other issues, uh, 
we really think that the UAE lobby was incredibly successful with the Biden administration. The, the Abraham Accords are a good example, um, which, you know, originally uh, originally happened under the Trump administration. Uh, but in the Biden administration, what the UAE has done is they've sort of um, kind of used the, the Abraham Accords, uh, which is this uh, ostensibly a peace agreement with Israel between the UAE and, and Israel and uh, Israel and other countries to normalize relations there between all these countries. Um, and while it's it sort of billed and sold as a Middle East uh, peace agreement, but what we discovered is that the, what their lobbyists are actually using this, you know, alleged peace agreement for is to secure more arms sales and more U.S. military co cooperation. And some of the uh, some of the explainers, the one pagers they're sending around, uh, they're even explicit about. It. They, they even say, you know, effectively because of this peace agreement, we need more military and U.S. military involvement in the Middle East, um, which is nonsensical, you know, as soon as you read it. But you, you, you read these slick PR forms, and you know, by, by the end of it, wow, you know that that kind of does. I guess that makes sense according to you, uh, you, you know, slick PR masters. Uh, but what we really saw was the Abraham Accords, you know, being used then as as, as a messaging point to further U.S. military entanglements in the Middle East. Yeah, I think the Abraham Accords bit is uh, pretty interesting to my listeners because, you know, we cover Israel and Palestine uh, a lot on this show. And I know uh, a lot of Palestinians denounced uh, the Abraham Accords as not really helping with matters. Uh, so even the UAE was involved in those accords. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think they're right to be concerned about the Abraham Accords. And I think the lobbying efforts sort of Put the, the they put the lie to it when you see what all of these lobbyists and PR folks are doing to to take what you know that they want to sell as this very peaceful thing um, to make it more of a weapon of war. And I think you know at least part of it is to to also diminish U.S. concerns about the Israel Palestine conflict too. And because at the end of the day, what we also saw in, in the UAE lobby, too, was this greater cooperation um, with Israeli groups in the U.S. Um, Emirati lobbyists were reaching out to to rabbis, to to synagogues across the country, faith leaders um, in the Jewish community, um, as well as uh, folks we might call the Israel lobby. Um, which is one of the, arguably one of the most influential lobbying groups um, that we have in the U.S. And so I, I think what the UAE has done with the Abraham Accords is they've tried to you know, tie themselves uh, to Israel and, and really use that Israel lobby, Israel influence in the U.S. to bolster themselves. And, and again, at the end of the day, to really further enmesh the, the U.S. military and U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East. Yeah, and I was just going to say in that regard, um, since we mentioned the Israel lobby, uh, I, I think when people hear the Emirati lobby or the Israel lobby, I, th I think when people hear the Israel lobby, they just think, oh, that must mean uh, the American Israel Public Affairs Committee. But when we sort of say the Saudi lobby or the Emirati lobby or even the Israel lobby in some ways, um, we're talking about multiple different um, groups that do lobbying. We're not just talking about necessarily even one group. 
No, no. I, yeah, I, I, I think you're exactly right. That's the perception. Um, it, when we talk about the Israel lobby, I think everybody, you know, goes right away to APAC, and you know, and there are other groups other than APAC that do lobby. There, there, I, I mean, even just dozens. pro-Israel lobbying. Uh, yeah. there, there's more than just APAC. Yeah, dozens, dozens, dozens. I mean, a, 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 APAC is bar none. You know, number one, I would say, but but there are many, many, many other groups. And, and and really the same is true for for all of the countries we look at, whether it's you know Saudi Arabia, UAE, Qatar. Um, I've looked at influence from uh, Japan, South Korea, Taiwan too. You know, wh- whatever country you're looking at, if you're looking at a foreign influence operation, that there's if they're good, I should say, at what they're doing, if they're effective, there's never one single entity where you can say, well, that's it. You know, they're they're doing it all. These these so, are so in a, in a way when we say. Like, like if I were to say something like, you know, if I was talking about Turkish lobbying efforts, when someone like me says the Turkish lobby, I think people should know we're not saying like a singular entity. We're really talking about multiple firms that act as a constellation of sorts uh, for a foreign interest. Right, right. I, I also, uh, since you brought it up, I did a report on the Turkish lobby too, uh, back when I was at the Center for International Policy. So I, I can speak directly to that. Um, with the Turkey lobby, it's uh, it, it's just like everybody we're talking about here. It's a constellation of lobbying, public relations firms. Uh, Turkey has connections, a uh, Turkish heritage organization uh, here in the U.S., uh, other you know domestic uh, groups here in the U.S., uh, that can, in some cases, work hand in hand with these lobbying and PR firms. So, so Turkey has that multifaceted approach. And really, the UAE, UAE, Saudi Arabia, and, and Qatar, I would say, they're they're perhaps in Israel, of course. They're, they're perhaps the, the greatest at, at capturing this multifaceted approach. They have tons of lobbying and PR firms working for them. Uh, they've got think tanks that they're funding who are saying the right things or not saying anything at all in some cases. Uh, they also have significant investments in American high, higher education. That's something I don't think we've talked about before, JG. But these countries, the, the they donate billions of dollars to the U.S. Uh, higher education. Uh, they pay for uh, individual scholarships. Sometimes they pay for individual specific professors. They pay for buildings in some cases. These, these are huge, huge, massive amounts of money um, that they're pumping into U.S. colleges and universities. And again, there are always strings attached with that funding. And at, at the very least, that's helping to shape the curriculum in a positive direction for those funders. Why is it that these uh, three countries, these Gulf countries, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, and the UAE, why do they seem to have the most influence when it comes to foreign lobbying? Uh, I mean, in regards to the Middle East specifically, like, you know, why are why is their influence so outsized uh, compared to maybe other Middle Eastern countries, whether it's Jordan or, you know, any number of countries? Why is it these three seem to have the most impact? <laughs> A couple reasons, I would say. The, is it just spending, or that's part of it? Yeah, I, I think in, in in order to be a, a a big player in this foreign influence game, you, you have to be able to put up the money to do it. Um, and, and, and so, you know, if you're a uh, you're a Yemen, let's say a, a a much poorer country than Saudi Arabia, UAE, or Qatar. You just don't have the money. Your, your government just doesn't have the, the, the millions or tens of millions of dollars to spend every year to hire, um, you know, these K Street lobbying firms. You just can't do it. Uh, 
Um, so, so you're outmatched right there. But even amongst these uh, countries who, who who have the resources to do it, first, you, you have to do it. You have to be willing to commit resources to, to do this. And I think what, what separates these countries is they really have a need to do it. Unlike a lot of, uh, when you look at the top spenders on the, these lobbying, these foreign influence operations, uh, in most cases, it's hard to find a, a, a Western democratic U.S. ally on the list because they get done what they need to get done through formal diplomatic channels. They're, they're ambassadors, they're, they're, they're regular diplomats. Those folks can really get done what they need to get done. They, they also have, in most cases, a built-in positive perception in the U.S. for these countries. And so they're it's less of a hill to climb for them. If you're a Middle Eastern autocracy or somebody like Saudi Arabia, who is uh, killing journal Washington Post journalists in foreign countries, um, you have a big hill to climb. And so they have to spend more and more on those lobbying and influence operations. And the key to those countries too, another, I would say a third thing then, is, is that they've done it for a while. Um, Saudi Arabia, especially, I, I, I've documented more than $200 million Saudi Arabia has spent on lobbying and PR operations since 9-11 happened. So we're, we're talking two decades of uh, just radical spending, lobbyists, former members of Congress working for them, former Hill staffers. So they can sort of build up this environment and this echo chamber over time that supports them. And then, you know, lobbyists then go into the administration and get key positions, come out again and become lobbyists again. And so that having that overtime element um, is incredibly helpful too. And then, and then of course, the, the the final one that I would say is the other, other dimensions of it. What are your force, force multipliers for your lobbying and PR operations? You have you have uh, friendly think tanks that that the foreign government is funding, or you have friendly academics. You know, can you can you call up somebody at uh, Georgetown receives a significant amount of money from from these foreign governments? Can you call up a professor at Georgetown um, who you know their salary is ostensibly paid for by this foreign government? Can you just call them up and you know? get them on a panel uh, at a think tank also funded by that government uh, at an event where these lobbyists are, are distributing the flyers for that event. When you can start to bring all of this together, you really get a trifecta of influence that is incredibly um, effective and influential in D.C. So one thing I wanted to ask about, and I know it's only a small portion of the report that you deal with this, but I think it will be illustrative uh, for my listeners of maybe how these influence operations work and why it's important to look at them is uh, you talk a little bit about uh, Senators Mark Kelly and Kristen Cinema, um, And I know a lot of my listeners are not fans of Kristen Cinema, so uh, they'll be interested to hear how she figured into, uh, you know, your report uh, in regards to, I guess, the F-35 uh, sort of boondoggle. Yeah, Cinema was a really interesting case. Um, they... Yeah, yeah, I think perhaps for many of the reasons why your your, your listeners are not a fan of uh, of cinema, um, that was actually a reason why she was targeted uh, by the UAE lobby. Because um, in, in many ways, you know, she she's a centrist Democrat. She was a you know somebody who was not in lockstep with with the party on on many issues, and uh, certainly many more now. Uh, um, but. It, 
at the time it was it was a key vote that was coming down in the Senate for uh for, for that arms sale that I mentioned for for the possibility of F-35s and uh those uh US military drones being uh exported to the UAE. And uh Mark Kelly and Kristen Cinema were were seen as swing votes in that process. And so what what happens that whenever somebody's a swing vote senator on a key vote for an arms sale or whatever whatever the bill is that's important to a foreign power that's really when we see the lobbyists kind of uh you know you, you know it's like a dog chasing a car they're you, you know they're going after them then and, and and we saw that at the time we saw you know call requesting a call between um uae ambassador uh and uh, ambassador alataiba and cinema herself um, but then in, in, in some cases it works, in some cases it doesn't. Cinema ultimately didn't vote for the, the sale of the UAE uh, uh, drones to the UAE, uh, but she did end up siding on a, uh, uh, the, uh, she voted for selling F-35s to the UAE. Um, both of those votes came after serious conversations between her office and UAE lobbyists. And I know it's a, I, I think for a lot of folks, it's a, a cinema is a lightning rod, but I, but I will just say her experience was not too uncommon. It, it, whenever somebody is seen as a swing vote on a key bill like this, they're gonna, the, the lobbyists for those countries are going to go after them. So in, in that way, this wasn't exactly unique. And really the, the key point to keep in mind here is that, you know, some of these votes can, um, they they can be uh you know right down to the wire you know a, a 50 to 46 vote right uh so yeah. th these things matter right that vote that i mentioned the on, on, on the f-35s that was a that was a 49 to 47 vote if so so literally to to, to your point jg if, if they, they they convinced cinema so she you know she got him to it ultimately didn't get approved but uh, if if they convince one more person, then that's a forty-eight to forty-eight vote at that point. You, you know, they get two, then it's not even a tie. You, you know, it's an outright. Right. Win. If they get two more votes, they can just completely tip the scales in their favor. And, and, and you think what that the 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 sort of ripple effects that that can have for U.S. foreign policy going forward? Suddenly, then the U.S. is providing are what, what is at least right now according to the US military our most advanced military aircraft to an authoritarian regime in the Middle East who we know meddles in US politics and elections uh you know is that really where we want to be sending our US military hardware and and then uh, once we send it to them we're in bed with them for years if not decades on the maintenance contracts, the the spare parts, supplies, training, and all that stuff, and and so all that could have happened, you know, had just two votes flipped over. So one thing I don't think we've mentioned thus far, but you have a whole section on it in the report, is uh, Expo twenty twenty Dubai. Maybe you could talk about what that is and and why it's significant to the report. Yeah, Expo twenty twenty Dubai was uh, was effectively a world's fair in in, in Dubai. This was, uh, I'm sure a lot of your listeners, uh, you know, at least heard of the, the, the Qatar World Cup. Um, in, in many ways, the, the Expo Dubai was, was the UAE's version of that, where the UAE was trying to show itself off to the world and ostensibly bring the world together 
for a uh, a big cultural event there. And uh, it, it lasted several months and, you know, has booths from most of the countries in, in, in the world. And it's really a show of uh, kind of putting the UAE on the world stage more, a real image management uh, type of it. The problem that the UAE had was that uh, the U.S. was uh, very reluctant to participate. <laughs> and so you had you, you, you had an extensive lobbying campaign that went on related to it to to get the U.S. to be involved in it. Ultimately, the UAE had to foot the bill for for, for paying for the U.S.'s participation in the event. And uh, after the fact, the UAE lobbyists spent uh, significant resources uh, spinning Expo 2020 here in the U.S. and, you know, highlighting all of the, uh, uh, I would say, the very good things that come out of the Expo, you know, the, the intercultural exchange, and, of course, leaving out uh, some of the, the same human rights workers' conditions that we heard a lot about with the Qatar World Cup. Uh, really, UAE's agents did a much better job of, of crushing. All, all those issues were happening in the UAE, too. You, you know, so all these human rights issues with workers, they're all going on in the UAE as well. They were part of the construction for Expo 2020 as well. Uh, but, but the lobbyists in the UAE itself did a really good job of covering those up. So I, I also wanted to deal with, uh, you mentioned that you have a report coming up on uh, Saudi lobbying efforts. Uh, any any bombshells you can drop on this show uh, about that upcoming report? Uh, no bombshells I'm, 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 uh, I'm ready to share yet. But, I, you know, I will say, we'll say a few things. I think there was a perception uh, after uh, Jamal Khashoggi's murder that uh, – Saudi influence was crippled or that, you, you, you know, this, 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 I called it the Saudi lobby juggernaut at the time. Uh, they had just really amassed this incredible influence operation. There was this perception post Khashoggi, I think that, that, that influence was gone. Um, the, the Saudis no longer held uh, incredible sway over DC anymore because of that. And because of Mohammed bin Salman's, you know, the repeated um, mistakes and foreign policy blunders. So everybody thought the sort of the Saudis were down and out. Um, I can tell you from our early research that that is absolutely uh, not true. Um, I, I, I would say arguably the Saudi lobby is stronger than than it was, uh, stronger, bigger, more well financed than it was before Jamal Khashoggi's murder. Um, the, uh, again, have former members of Congress uh, serving as lobbyists for them now, former congressional staff, former executive branch people. They're all doing the biddings of the Saudis on Saudi lobby payroll now, um, continuing to influence a number of the issues uh, th that we've already mentioned. Um, and so I think for for your readers, this is going to be another, uh, for your listeners, uh, I would encourage them to be my readers as well. Uh, I, I think this will be another example of an, of an eye-opening bit uh, on a foreign influence operation that is trying, and I think on many metrics, succeeding to move U.S. foreign policy in a more militarized direction. Also, I just wanted to ask, I don't know how to put this, but we've talked about foreign countries contributing to academia, uh, like money to uh, academic institutions and, um, you know, trying to influence politicians. Is there any times where there's arguably positives to allowing foreign countries to contribute money to certain organizations? Like, for instance, I, I know there are certain uh, there, there are certain foreign countries that I, I think have contributed money to, say, um, you know, institutions 
uh, designed to better understanding between uh, the Western world and the Islamic world. And I really don't have an issue with that so much. Um, right. So it doesn't sound like everything always is as negative or dark. Um, I mean, I think in the case of the UAE and Saudi Arabia and whatnot, I mean, these are countries engaged in human rights abuses. But uh, right. at times, I think I can understand uh, foreign countries uh, giving money to certain things that are are meant to better cultural exchange. Yeah, absolutely. I I I think it's really valuable to to have that engagement. Uh, speaking specifically to uh, colleges and universities, you want that you want that engagement with uh, with folks from foreign countries. You want that more rounded, worldly understanding uh, for, for our sons and daughters. You you want them to have that. Uh, where it can become a problem is when you start to have academic censorship because uh, of that funding. The, the interaction itself is great. We need more of that, frankly, I think, at colleges and universities. We need more of these international um, interactions, study abroad, uh, you, you, you know, campus trips, that sort of thing. Those international changes are fantastic. It's a problem and it starts to change the quality of the education, starts to bias the education systematically towards those who can afford to pay for it. And I think that's where we see some of the problems with uh, Qatar and uh, Saudi Arabia and the UAE, um, as well as China. You know, Chinese influence in academia, I think, has been one of the probably the most well documented uh, uh, in terms of the impact that a foreign government can have on education in America. There's all kinds of examples of Chinese influence leading to um, uh, censorship among professors in, in, in text and the curriculum itself. So I think there is a real danger there that we need to be leery of, while at the same time encouraging actually more engagement, as long as it's open and honest academic engagement. Another thing I will say, too, about I, I, I now live and work in Florida, uh, and I was born and raised in Florida, so it's uh, it's precious to me. Uh, we have hurricanes quite often, and um, uh, both the Saudi Arabia and the UAE have uh, on multiple occasions now come in after hurricanes and, and made donations to uh, to Red Cross and other aid organizations in Florida after hurricanes. Um, and I think that's good. I, I don't think there's, I, I, I commend them for doing that. And so I think in some cases there's, uh, it, it's benevolent, uh, uh, these contributions can truly be benevolent, even if they're from a regime, uh, you know, we, we may fundamentally disagree with. So in closing, is there anything I missed or uh, what, what do you hope listeners get out of the conversation we've had uh, for the past hour uh, concerning UAE lobbying and just foreign lobbying and foreign influence in general in the United States? I, I, my, my one piece of advice I would say is to just, I, or at least I hope that th this conversation has helped to raise awareness that uh, uh, that foreign influence is happening. Uh, I, I think my my biggest challenge is that it's the um, uh, it's the old line they had about the the the, the, the devil's uh, best trick is making the world believe he didn't exist. Uh, I think that's the that's foreign lobbyists' best trick is they uh, the more the public is unaware that they exist, uh, the more effective they can be. I think at the very least, the listeners have now a sense that this is going on behind the scenes. And so whenever you're turning on, uh, you know, NPR, CNN, Fox News, wherever you might get your news, whatever side of the political spectrum you might get your news from, if you see that expert uh, or, or hear them talking about uh, one of these foreign countries, uh, maybe just ask yourself, well, where's their funding coming from? You know, if they're from, particularly if they're from a think tank in D.C., 
uh, maybe just question whether that think tank is is taking that money or if they've been in contact with with one of these lobbyists. I, I guess also I wanted to ask you, do you think in the future, um, I, I honestly feel like you and, and maybe Eli Clifton are probably two of the only people I know covering um, foreign influence operations in the U.S., uh, and I, I guess that's in part because a lot of these think tanks and whatnot get money from foreign yeah. countries. So that that probably affects things. Uh, I know there's also it, it, it can be difficult to. I I, I think fair is very underfunded, is uh, my understanding. Absolutely. Uh, so it, it sounds like there's a lot of hurdles, uh, just with regards to dealing with this topic and looking into it. Uh, do you think there's any hope that'll change in the future? I I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm a perpetual optimist, but... I, I mean, I, am I wrong to say that I feel like you and Eli are, are two of the... There's not that many voices covering this. It is it is lonely, JG. <laughs> you are right. There is... A, there are a few more um, than than Eli and I, but 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 not too many. I I, I would certainly point um, your listeners to um, Anna Masuglia and uh, Taylor Giorno at uh, Open Secrets, uh, OpenSecrets.org. They do some wonderful fair research over there. Taylor uh, uh, used to work with Bill Hartung and I um, at the Quincy. You and Taylor have been on my show together, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Taylor's just wonderful. Um, and, and now she's, you know, she's carrying on this tradition uh, at Open Secrets. Uh, so, so so definitely encourage your listeners to to give her work a read. Um, yeah, and, and, and uh, you, you know, there's a handful of other folks who, who dive into this issue, too. Uh, Casey Michelle, too, is an kind of independent contributor. Um, uh, he does some really great fair investigative work, too. Uh, but, but there's not a lot of folks that are really dedicated to this. And so I think, you know, we do... We need more resources for this. We are just woefully outgunned for all the reasons you said. All you know, most of the other think tanks around town are funded by one or more of these authoritarian regimes that we mentioned, um, and they're funded to the tune of millions and billions of dollars. Um, and for uh, uh, <laughs> Eli Clifton and I are, are <laughs> no match for that in many cases. So you know, we'd love to create more folks, and you know, we'd love to have more funding. To, to, to bring more attention to to what's actually going on behind the scenes. And the, the second part of that was that I, there's issues with the department uh, within the government that deals with fair itself, right? Where it's, is it underfunded or? I think it is. I, I, the, the, and that's where I was a bit more hopeful. I think that the congressional attention and the national security community's attention has, I, I think, awakened to this threat. And then yeah, it seems threat. like it's shifted a lot it has, since yeah. maybe 2016 because people were concerned about Russia and whatnot. Yeah. 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 So since 2016 was a wake up call. You know, I, I, I wrote a book, uh, the foreign policy auction about this, with this foreign influence industry. Uh, I wrote that back in 2012 and frankly, nobody cared, <laughs> you know, back then it took 2016 to get people to care about foreign influence. And because it's the government, it took them several years to actually, you know, get things in place to do something about it. But we, we know that the DOJ recently reported that the FARA unit has increased its staff size and, you know, it has now an additional dedicated researcher. Um, I believe, and there, there's an FBI agent who's now fully staffed to the FARA unit, so you can have actually some of that better, you know, hardcore um, FBI investigative power, you know, right there at their beck and call. Um, so the office is expanding, but but again, the uh, you know, it's a David versus Goliath fight. They, they've added a handful of individual people to do this work. 
meanwhile, the the Emiratis, the Saudis, the Qataris, everybody we've talked about, they've increased their spending. They've increased the number of lobbyists they've hired, you know, tenfold in some cases. Um, and so there's still, a, you know, a giant disparity in resources between the folks that are that, that are trying to play foreign influence cop and the the actual people doing the foreign influence. Well, hey, Ben Freeman, I want to thank you again. Uh, as usual, I kept you a little over an hour, um, uh, more than expected uh, initially, but I, I thank you for humoring me. And it's always a fascinating conversation. How can my listeners uh, keep up with your work? Yeah, always a pleasure, JG. Um, if, if folks want to follow my work, uh, check us out at uh, responsiblestatecraft.org or at, on the Quincy Institute website, uh, quincyinstitute.org. Um, and uh, if you want my my snarky comments about the foreign influence industry, uh, check me out on Twitter uh, at Ben Freeman DC. Thank you again, Ben Freeman. Thank you, JG. Always a pleasure. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with the Quincy Institute's Ben Freeman, and that you'll check out his latest report. The Emirati Lobby in America. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, until next time, You've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. It's nothing else. If we don't do it, others will be doing this like right. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.